Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast brought to you by Lindenwood University's Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise. Examining market approaches to help solve economic and social issues, Hammond.Institute. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. We can always find moments in history that changed it for better or worse. Next Sunday and Monday, the History Channel is presenting a two-part series that make the point. It's titled Presidents at War and broadly tells the stories of how war shaped and changed eight men who ultimately became president. The presidents are Dwight Eisenhower, JFK, Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, and George H.W. Bush. Joining me from Annapolis is military historian John McManus. He's a resident of Baldwin, professor of history at Missouri S&T, and the author of 13 books primarily on World War II. He is heavily involved in the History Channel production with his focus primarily on Dwight Eisenhower. John, nice to talk to you again. Hey, Don. Great to be with you. What are you doing in Annapolis? Well, I'm here on a uh, one-year distinguished visiting professorship. It's called the Leo A. Schifrin Chair, and I'm teaching uh, American military history in World War II and uh, history of Americans in ground combat to the midshipmen. I envy you being in Annapolis. It's one of my favorite little towns. It's a great town. I really like it. It really is. Looking forward, too, to the History Channel production uh, coming up next week, John. Um, But let's get right to it. You're focusing primarily on Dwight Eisenhower. And I think it's important, as we start this conversation, to let people know that it wasn't all about uh, D-Day with Ike. He had some some misses along with that big hit. Absolutely. It was was a work in progress for him. I mean, he starts out the war um, basically, you know, in— D.C. in the Pentagon, in the War Plans Division, kind of just like planning grand strategy. And that's sort of a trial balloon that his boss, George Marshall, uses to see if maybe he thinks he would be ready for for, uh, Ike for strategic command. So he gets the invasion of North Africa, which was so politically problematic because, you know, you're dealing with the Vichy French, you're dealing with local nationalists, um, a little bit of tinge of Axis influence, and then, of course, trying to keep the Allied coalition together was just enough of a job in and of itself. So Eisenhower deals with all sorts of crises in the Mediterranean. So really, by the time of D-Day, he's he's kind of an experienced operator who's learned some lessons and lessons and taken some hard lumps. But early on, there was the, the word humiliation was used, if I re- recall correctly, in terms of uh, some of the African campaign that uh, were very unsuccessful for him. Yeah, and most notably, mm-hmm. the uh, the counterattack that Rommel launches around this time of year, mid-February 1943, uh, primarily against the American lines. And, you know, he, he drives about a 14-mile wedge in the, in the American lines. He captures thousands of U.S. prisoners. And this was humiliating in the sense that it showed that uh, the Americans were not quite ready for prime time. They, they would in time, and Eisenhower learns a tremendous number of lessons from this, but it was not, you know, a particularly auspicious beginning. How does a commander survive something like that? Uh, you know, I think he survives it because he's, he's already taking action even by the end of it, and he helps turn it around. One of the things we tend to forget about the, the battle we often call Kasserine Pass is um, how reactive Eisenhower and, and some of his key subordinates were in turning the thing around. Uh, and they, they regain the lost ground. They, they basically win a strategic victory, ultimately, though you wouldn't have known it within the first one week or so. So I think that's one of the reasons why he does survive. And already by then, um, I think it's fair to say that he had consummated and, and, and established good relationships with key decision makers 
um, from from the various Western countries. And of course, most notably, the political figures like Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt had some confidence in him. And on the American military side, his boss, General George Marshall, had confidence. And they knew that this was going to be a tough war in which you're going to have some reverses. So the the um, you know, the, the, the standards, the kind of thinking is a little bit different than the sort of zero defect viewpoint that later generations will have for military operations. How do you think all of this informed his presidency? Oh, I think that Eisenhower had a very keen sense of America's emerging position in the world, uh, but that it, as powerful as the United States was becoming and was going to be, that it needed, it, in fact, what was vital to American security and to what he thought was the human future was the establishment of strong, impervious alliances. And, and in that sense, you know, he's primarily thinking about the European partners uh, like Britain and France and Italy, uh, you know, post Mussolini, of course. He's, he's thinking about, about Europe, but of course, as his presidency unfolds, um, you know, events in Asia are really setting much the tone. And so obviously he didn't have it firsthand experience in the in the Asia Pacific War, but I think his experiences in, in Europe taught him that lesson that the United States needed allies in order to extend its influence. And I, I think that uh, he also had a kind of a, a toleration for other points of view and and uh, and the, you know a kind of embracing of healthy debate because he had seen how this kind of honest leadership environment could lead to good results during the war. I wonder what he'd be thinking with regard to our our relationship with uh, many of our allies today. Uh, you know, I tend to think he'd be pretty distressed by it because, you know, he is he is such a diplomatic, you know, person in so many ways. I think that he feels that, um, you know, five to ten minutes of, of good, earnest, honest conversation can lead to, you know, the establishment of a very strong relationship that pays dividends for, you know, maybe years down the line uh, and trust. And I, I think that he would probably be a little bit vexed by the idea of the United States turning back inward, because if there was one thing that Eisenhower certainly was, it was an internationalist, uh, kind of post-Wilson internationalist who um, sees the United States as the, the key player in the world, and that bad things happen when the U.S. doesn't play that role. I think when we think of, of Dwight Eisenhower, we might not necessarily think of him as an intellectual. Uh, would, would you say that he was well, I definitely think he was. I mean, we, you know, from my standpoint as a military historian, there's no question he's a military intellectual. I mean, he, he graduated, for instance, first in his class at the, uh, you know, the General Staff and Command College at uh, Fort Leavenworth. And, you know, that was no mean feat. I mean, that, you know, you had intense competition and you're not going to do that unless certainly you're very committed and you have a kind of an intellect that perhaps separates you a little bit. So I, I think that, um, during in his, pres his presidency, and maybe the first 20 years or so after that, there was a sense of this, this kind of bumbling old uncle with his, uh, you know, sort of butchered syntax and, and all of this kind of stuff. But I think, um, you know, now the, the consensus has emerged among many of his biographers and certainly among military historians like me, that Eisenhower really did have a, a first-rate intellect, and that's part of why he ends up as a you know, pretty successful leader in a lot of ways. And he's, he certainly was prescient in, in, in certain ways. His farewell address with regard to the military-industrial complex was right on the money, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's the irony of the whole thing. I mean, here is a man who has spent his entire adult life in military circles, in the Army, actually. And, of course, um, you know, his um, defense and security policy as president really centers around air power more so than anything else at the, you know, the minimization of ground power. 
Um, so that was ironic, too. And then at the end of his presidency, he says, hey, you know, we got to watch out for the military industrial complex, um, which is really, in a way, a byproduct of the internationalist America that he most advocated. And so I think if he were, it's only my opinion, but if he were sort of speaking with us candidly immediately after his presidency, this, one of the disappointments he would probably tell us is that um, he hadn't ended the Cold War. He hadn't really diffused that tension uh, and that both sides were building missiles and the tension was amping up, of course, in Southeast Asia and other hotspots. And, and he had wanted to quell that. Well, of course, the Cold War did end with uh, one of the other presidents that are cited in the History Channel series. But before we get to uh, George H.W. Bush and some of the others, uh, tell us exactly what your role has been with the production of this series. Right. So I, uh, I've been in touch with them. I guess they first got in touch with me a little over a year ago. And um, we, we began a series of conversations about the experiences of the various presidents. And of course, they're keenly interested. And I think this is a great topic that uh, they, they wanted to know um, how their wartime experiences shaped them as leaders, shaped their presidencies ultimately, or whether it had any effect or not. And I, I've felt for years that with all of them, that World War II was a formative event, particularly uh, of course, obviously for Eisenhower, you know, so um, we, we discussed that first and then and then I you know sat for a series of interviews to, you know, to, to participate in the documentary. And um, if I am remembering correctly, I mean, we focused in my case primarily on on Eisenhower, Johnson, uh, Nixon, um, Reagan as well. And, and we and again, there was that kind of overarching theme of what happened to these guys in World War II. Explain to us the context and then maybe we can venture forward and see how, you know, their experiences and what happened to them, uh, you know, really did affect their decisions, their decision making as presidents. And I just think it's a fascinating thing to come to grips with. Was there any discussion? I, I know this is all focusing on World War II, but was there any discussion about Harry Truman and his role in World War I, particularly given the role he played in, in ending World War II? You know, from my vantage point, there wasn't. Uh, maybe they spoke with other scholars about that. I, I don't know. But um, it, it's a fascinating topic, too, and an important one. And there's no question that Truman's World War I experience, you know, is seminal in, you know, in shaping him and, and his decisions at the end of World War II and thereafter. Uh, but we did not really get into that in much depth. Um, then post-interviews, too, the other thing is I, I did quite a bit of consulting with them, too, about the uh, the script and uh, they would bounce questions off me and, and that kind of thing too. So it was, it was a fun project because we could, you know, kind of see, uh, you know, what you could focus on and not, cause it's, a, it's such a huge body of material you could, um, you know, you could cover, but they need to distill it for two nights of programming. Um, so, but I, I think it's really the, the final product looks like it's going to be a, a pretty interesting thing to watch. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it. You know, it's pretty clear that that history, history certainly would have been changed had uh, JFK and Lyndon Johnson and uh, Bush 41 not been pretty lucky during World War II. They were lucky to survive it. Uh, they really were. You know, in, in Johnson's case, uh, it's it's such a quixotic moment because he, you know, he, he he had gone to the South Pacific. As you know, of course, he was already a congressman. You know, he leaves Congress to join the Navy and he's really just not doing much of anything tangible. But he knows he needs to get into a combat zone for his political career. This is classic Johnson. You know, he's such a political animal and so self 
centered. And uh, so he gets to the South Pacific, to the Southwest Pacific area to MacArthur's command, and he arranges to, to participate, to, to basically go along as a observer on a medium bomber mission in New Guinea. And um, he was... He was assigned onto one plane that he was about to get onto, but he had to use the restroom. And by the time he came back, someone else was in his seat, so he went on a different plane. Well, it turned out the original plane that he was supposed to, to fly on got was the one that got shot down on the mission. So, uh, you know, if, if Johnson had not had to answer the call of nature at that moment, obviously history would have been dramatically different. Just one of those odd little quirks. Yeah, and you're right. That absolutely is a quintessential LBJ. <laughs> Just a, yeah, a story, no, a story sure. like that. I was I was uh, surprised in reading over some material from the series, John. That um, that uh, JFK. I I know he was a hero. The PT one hundred nine story is well told, but I hadn't been really uh, as up to date as I should have been on how heroic he was during that incident. I mean, swimming with the uh, kind of the bit in, in, in between his teeth, uh, helping one of his crewmates uh, survive that, uh, that uh, incident, really quite a heroic uh, effort. Uh, absolutely remarkable. And, uh, you know, this is a guy who, you know, has grown up basically with a pervertible silver spoon in his mouth. And yet at this moment of crisis, he's really thinking of – not himself, but everybody else, exactly as an officer is supposed to uh, in in this enormous crisis. And I, you know, I mean, he, the other thing too that's interesting about it, I mean, there's no question he was a hero um, doing, doing, you know, major acts that, that could get you highly decorated, but he's not really thinking about it politically in the aftermath too. He's, he's more ashamed in a way to have lost his boat, um, you know, it, and not that he did anything that terrible, but he... He's not really thinking about self-promotion at all. It's the sort of Kennedy political machine that comes along later and, you know, realizes the political gold you would get out of PT-109. Uh, John Kennedy did not really want to trumpet that in the aftermath. He was uh, really quite an anonymous uh, PT boat captain, even after that happened. But his guys knew what he had done. We are talking with military historian John McManus, uh, who was a part of a History Channel presentation coming up this weekend called Presidents at War. Um, how is the Kennedy thing going to be presented during this series? Do we have any, any video, any, any film, any authentic stuff that um, they can work into this, this series? Um, unfortunately, I don't think I can answer that fairly because I was not involved at all with the Kennedy side of it. Um, I, I was curious enough to ask them about it because obviously PT-109 is so well known. Um, I wondered if there was something new and it, it you know, they said, yeah, we think we're going to be able to get some new accounts, um, you know, of people who were, who were there or how he was affected by it. And I, so I thought that sounds very interesting. I think they were focusing with Robert Dalek in particular, who was one of mm -hmm. Kennedy's biographers, um, you know, on the, on the PT 109 incident. So many of us uh, were reacquainted with the video they do have of George H.W. Bush's rescue in the Pacific uh, during World War II. Very dramatic stuff. And um, that, too, had to have some impact on, on that man as he moved on through the many posts that he had, including the presidency. Dramatic impact. I mean, he, this was one of the youngest uh, fighter <laughs> or excuse me, naval aviators in in the Navy at that point. He lost his two crewmen that time he was shot down. 
um, and it's something that, of course, never left him, that sense of uh, leadership as obligation, as service, of thinking of others first. Um, I think it's fair to say George H.W. Bush was sort of hotwired that way throughout a lot of his life. And um, um, there's no question, too, that he was one of the things that really stayed with him was that the finality and seriousness of war. Um, I, I think he took that very seriously throughout his entire life. And you really see it later on during the Desert Storm and the Persian Gulf War, um, when he has an opportunity to stop hostilities on February 28, 1991, uh, you know, with the goal accomplished of removing Saddam's army from Kuwait, um, he immediately stops right then. He doesn't want another life lost uh, from, from hanging on to, to hostilities for, for even an hour too long. I wonder if Eisenhower would have done the same thing. Um, Eisenhower, <laughs> I think, probably would have thought it a little more broadly and strategically. Uh, but I think that in the end, he probably would have ended up in much the same place, but maybe a day or two later. Um, because what Eisenhower would have been quite conscious of is keeping the coalition together. And of course, if you decide you're going to reroute the mission and go to Baghdad or whatever else, now you're into a completely different animal um, that would have, you know, fractured the coalition. Um, but you know, it's interesting to speculate. Yeah, and particularly if he had had a George Patton with him, <laughs> what he might have done. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, they would have gone right through, no, no doubt. You know, you don't often think of, um, of Ronald Reagan in connection with World War II. I mean, he was a movie star, uh, and a lot of movie stars served, but they served, for the most part, fairly comfortably. And, and he did, too, as it turned out, but he didn't want to. Um, Reagan volunteered for combat. He wanted to be deployed overseas, but his eyesight was just absolutely terrible. And, uh, and, and he was also, you know, like you said, he was already a movie star. He was older. Um, you know, he was in his 30s. So it's not like he was some 20-year-old kid who would be, you know, more likely to be drafted and do something physical somewhere. But um, so Reagan, they, I think that the, uh, certainly the Army and the Army Air Force at the time felt he would be more useful to the war effort um, in the realm of communication as to how to, uh, to, to buck up morale, how to gather information, how to use film in order to train crews. I mean, Reagan did a heck of a lot of work on this, and he was very proud of his service um, because he really had nothing to be ashamed of. He, <laughs> he tried very hard to get deployed. They wouldn't do it, and so he did what they would allow him to do, and I don't think there's any question but that it affected him. I wonder if he brought anything from that experience to the presidency. I, I personally think he did. Again, this sense, this growing sense of American power and American importance. And in Reagan's case, what he would have thought of as, uh, you know, a kind of American exceptionalism. So the war to him meant American destruction of tyrannical empires and that that was America's new role in the world. And, and as he started to change politically after the war, because you probably know he was a very much a hardcore Democrat, a union leader, um, but he felt that that uh, communism had kind of changed the game and changed the, the equation. So he becomes obviously an ardent anti-communist. And so again, there's this sense of mission um, of, of America's sort of the unique purpose in the world. And I think that World War II is to some extent just the foundation of that for him. How about Jimmy Carter? Now, Jimmy Carter is too young to have been you know, d deployed overseas. But of course, as we know, he was schooled right here, not far from here at the U.S. Naval Academy as a as really one of the first of the, the nuclear uh, oriented officers of his generation of nuclear submarines, eventually uh, nuclear power and, and its impact on naval 
um, naval affairs. Um, Jimmy Carter, you know, again, I think that one of the things that's fair to say is the sense of service, the sense of commitment to the larger and greater good. Um, I think he learns all those things here and sees, you know, how this has played out in World War II and the folks who are older, uh, maybe his TAC officers and whatever else. Um, so I don't think there's any question, but that the, the kind of commitment to service from that era affects him for the rest of his life and in his presidency. Is there a common thread, a, a straight line you can draw amongst these, uh, these, these eight presidents uh, in connection with their wartime experience and their presidencies? Uh, I think that if there is one common thread, it is that, that word I had mentioned a moment ago, service, um, and that, that uh, certainly that the armed forces are highly important in the modern presidency to modern America, uh, that Americans have an obligation to serve. And that doesn't necessarily always mean militarily, but it means larger humankind for America's role in securing freedom or whatever. I think that's one thing. You see this kind of straight line from Eisenhower to George H.W. Bush, um, they all would have kind of agreed with that abstract notion. They might have argued of what that meant. Uh, they might have taken it down different paths that some would agree with and others would disagree with, especially in relation to Vietnam, uh, you know, in which Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon are heavily involved and Ford a little bit too. Uh, but I do think that that's kind of the straight line, that they, they had all had that kind of formative experience of being World War II era Americans. Um, so they, in that sense, they were all very much creatures of the 20th century. Very, very quickly here, the Eisenhower Presidential Library and Museum in Kansas is undergoing renovation. Are you involved with that at all by any chance? I am not, although I'm, I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks to speak about Eisenhower and, and particularly the, the uh, parallels between Eisenhower and Grant, which are almost eerie. They're so similar in so many ways, and Eisenhower really kind of sought to emulate Grant. So I'm hoping to maybe get a look firsthand at, uh, at, you know, the, the ongoing work, provided, of course, that it'll be open, that we don't yeah. have a government shutdown. A subject for another time. John McManus, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, time is up. The History Channel production of Presidents at War is airing at 7 o'clock this coming Sunday and Monday. Thank you again, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, Don. I appreciate it. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.